Hello and welcome to Long Range Sensors, the show where we reminisce about growing up with Star Trek and discuss an episode from the vast library of the Star Trek franchise. Later in today's episode of Long Range Sensors, we'll be picking up the original series episode, The Galileo 7. This episode is brought to you with the generous support of our founding members over on Patreon. Thank you so much to Cosmic, Liwaz, Sonu, Minipax, and Elkhorn. If you want to find out how you can support the show and get exclusive benefits too, you can visit patreon.com slash longrangesensors. My name is Alistair, and I'm a British expat residing in the Canadian province of Nova Scotia. Joining me from across the Atlantic Ocean in London, England, is someone who will easily clear you out in a game of Dabo. It's Mr. Trevor Whale. Hello, Trev. Alistair, play Dom Jot. <laughs> Sorry, that was my, Nor- my Norse- Norsican impression. <laughs> Won't stab you in the back or, or anything like. You well, know. that's good. That's good. I, I, uh, they, they don't do decent uh, fake hearts. Yeah. Uh, just yet. So, and I certainly wouldn't be able to afford one. I think that was pretty close. I did sort of just say that, didn't I, in that episode uh, to young Picard? Um, but yeah. yeah. Don't worry. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm partial to Dubbo as well. More of a more of a dumb jot fan. That weird futuristic pool game. I think. Mm. Great, great fact there to start off the episode. That's what you're here for, isn't it? Pointless trivia. Well, we're Trekkies, you know, we live off pointless, you know, trivia. It's amazing how many games that they've actually invented for these shows, though, because we've got Debo, we've got Dom Jot, we've got um, uh, 3D Chess, which you can buy. And I was yes. actually looking at buying one, and my God, is it expensive. Still, Yeah, they're all day. really well like made of glass and like with like die-cast sort of pieces for it. They're always the really high-quality sort of stuff, aren't they? I'm pretty sure they're gold-plated as well. Yeah. The, the really expensive set. There's a couple of different sets. The, the cheapest one is still expensive. But if you're going for the gold-plated one, my God. I think we know um, what the most alien and outlandish game is in the whole of the Star Trek universe. And that is darts. I mean, where did they come up with that? <laughs> I'm like, it's bored on the wall. Like, that's something crazy. I can't even, you know, I don't know if you're throwing stuff at it. It's got LEDs. Like, who doesn't yeah, want to play darts yeah. with LEDs? You know, like, like, like the, the, the production department was like, right, we need to make this look like a futuristic version of darts. <laughs> what can we do? Well, we really have to push the boat out, guys. I'll just stick some LEDs around it. Cool. We're done. Great. Next. <laughs> <laughs> but, but moving on, moving on. <laughs> I thought that today it would be really cool to talk about some of the Star Trek exhibitions that have been out there. And I think that probably the best one to first to start with is Star Trek Destination London, purely because we've mentioned it on the show before. And it's one that we went to together. That was my first Star Trek convention. I think um, we knew it was coming uh, like maybe a couple of years before, I think they announced it. Yeah. JJ film, yeah. the first JJ film had just hit. Um, Into Darkness was coming out a little bit after um, uh, when we went to the convention, but there was also a big, a huge sudden upsurge in just Star Trek popularity. So I don't think there'd been a convention in in London for about about 10 odd years, I think. Maybe the early 2000s, Mm. maybe the last one. I think that was a big thing they were saying. I haven't been one since about 2002 or three. Um, So this was big. Um, And this is October 2012. yeah, October 27th. So we both knew we wanted to go. Uh, so he said, we, well, I was also, I'd been already been with my girlfriend for a couple of years at that point. I'd already introduced her to Star Trek um, 
by that point, we'd have been watching it for a while. Um, so she was already kind of basically a Trekkie at that point. Yeah, I assimilated her. Um, kind of <laughs> a bit of but, uh, but anyway, so point is, she was into it by this point. So um, we thought, yeah, let's go. I've been to other conventions. Like I've been to like, I think maybe one or two anime conventions at the Excel Centre in London, which is the main kind of convention place in East London. Um, yeah. It's like a giant aircraft hangar basically, or two or three aircraft hangers are probably about the right size. Um, I went to a video game one. What I remember about the video game was it was the first time I saw Transformers War for Cybertron, and I thought it would look crap <laughs> when I saw it. And it turned out that was like the best Transformers game ever. It was years later that I played that game and thought, wow, this is amazing. But anyway, that's another thing. Uh, so I knew conventions, but it was always in the back of my mind that there was always a Star Trek presence at these conventions. There's always like two or three stalls selling stuff. Maybe there'd be an actor from um, one of the Star Trek series or something would be there. I went to, in 2006, I went to a convention in Milton Keynes where I met um, Anthony Montgomery, um, who right. was Travis Mayweather. He was really awesome, really friendly dude. Um, I met Avery Brooks, who refused to take a photo with me. Well, I got his autograph. Um, <laughs> and now, at the time, I was like, oh, what the hell? How rude is that? But now I know that, to be honest, people were paying for a, for a picture with him later on as a proper little, you know, with a good background yeah. and, and everything. Um, so he wouldn't be allowed to do it. Yeah, well, we went to one where there was Jewel State from Stargate and Firefly. And, yes. And I was getting her autograph and, uh, and asked if I could get a photo. And you were going to take the picture. And she kind of very, she, she put it very kindly. She was, yes. she was a, I'd love to, but it's not fair on those who are spending money for that opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I thought that was really nice. Actually, yeah, but, which is right. Yeah. I've seen Jerry Ryan at, at, at that particular convention as well. Yes. Uh, we had. Who is awesome, by the way. Yeah, she genuinely is. And when we were at Star Trek Destination London, we even saw Sir Patrick Stewart. Yeah, that, that, that was mind blowing. God, yeah. And we saw Carl Urban. And David Warner, mm-hmm. which was fantastic. So what was really cool about it, um, he mentioned, he talked about Ninja Turtles, because obviously I'm a big fan of Turtles as well. So I'm like, I knew, well, I'm, he's in so many things that I really like, like Tron, obviously Star Trek, you know, he's uh, in Star Trek V, Star Trek VI, he's um, Gold Madrid um, yep. in the Chain of Command, um, very famous episode. And in fact, I think when he came on, he came on the stage, and I'll never forget this. He was like, uh, oh, can anybody tell me how many lights there are? And everybody went, there are four lights. Uh, so he was oh, really yeah. fun, you know. I've yeah, always, I always have a thing where, like, sometimes those Shakespearean actors, they kind of think Star Trek was just this dumb, you know, TV thing they had to do to get money. But no, he he, he loved it. He was he loved talking about it. He talked about Ninja Turtles. Um, yeah. And that, that's the thing, because I was going to ask him, uh, if you remember, I was talking to you, saying I, I, I kind of want to ask him about turtles. but Yeah, and I was like, yeah, dude, you should. It'll be cool. Yeah, and I was thinking, well, that'll be beneath him, though, because it's turtles. Yeah. He's not going to want to be talking about that. We're worried we're, we're probably going to be the only two Ninja Turtles fans here, right? <laughs> so we piss everybody off. We Somebody yeah. else asked him, and he, yeah, started, yeah. And he just went, that was one of the funnest movies I've ever been involved with. Yeah, and it's because yeah. he's always typecast as the villain, and that was one of the ones yeah. where he got to be the good guy. And he loved it. And I, I was I was so surprised by that. Yeah. And obviously, you know, some people have The Secret of the Ooze, Turtles 2, the second Turtles film, which I actually really like. I know it's not as good as the... It's probably the, the third best Turtles film now we've got. Um, I'm not mm. counting those Michael Bay ones because they're pretty terrible. 
but um, the original one and uh, TMNT, which a lot of people forget about, the animated one in 2007. That's really mm. good. And Patrick Stewart is in that, funnily enough, and there's a voice mm. in that film. Um, that's a really good film, and two, I would put after that. That's, that's a good film, but David Warner's in that. Yeah, he plays a scientist that works for um, TGRI, um, the, the people that make the ooze that created the turtles. I'm going way off on a yeah. tangent now. But yeah, the point is he was really enthusiastic. It was really great. Um, and Brent Spiner did a talk as well. Yes. Yeah, that yeah. was phenomenal seeing him. I, I, I can't remember. Could we get... I don't think we could get tickets to that one, but we were able to see through a gap we stood and, at the back, didn't we? We basically heard yeah, everything. We heard <laughs> everything. We could just about see him through this gap. And so we kind of got to see it for free. <laughs> and then we saw like Jeffrey Combs started trolling him and yet and, he and heckling him from, mm. from the back. And they started bantering with each other. And obviously, you know, we love Jeffrey Combs as well because all the amazing characters he plays in Star Trek. So that was kind of cool. And we, we saw um, Brandon Braga and Michael Dawn did the same to him. Yes, he was trolling. He was trolling Braga yeah. doing that, which was just absolutely hilarious. Just to see these guys just all just having fun with the banter between them was great. And that's when Brandon yeah. Braga said that you mentioned it on the fresh our first episode that um like so like a little girl or something came up and like got got him to sign her VHS copy of Threshold, um <laughs> which, which which he did. It it was good fun. It was a really good convention. I mean, it was great to be at a convention for me to be at a convention of what, that is just Star Trek. I've been to plenty where it was just one thing. I mean, we're into other stuff as well. I mean, we actually had been to a few other... We went to London Comic Con, I think, maybe a couple of times Yeah, um, when you yeah. were still in, in the UK. I think we went to more than one that's together. Right. That's right. Yeah, that's the one where yeah. uh, we saw Jerry Ryan and, uh, yes. and Jules Day and so on. Yeah. 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 And um, my girlfriend shouted at um, the guy that drew um, Superman's Secret Origin because... He, he, he said he's not going to sign any more copies, even though we'd queued for ages. Because I had a oh, copy yes. of the first issue. But there was a dude that literally had a box of comics, and he was getting to sign every one. I was like, this is freaking ridiculous. And he was well, It wasn't just it that. He was yeah. doing very complicated drawings, if I recall, very time-consuming ones. So it wasn't yeah. like a very quick sketch and, uh, and helping the line move along. He was spending, I think it must have been like 20 minutes to half an hour just per drawing. And yeah, so and you guys waiting. were just queuing there for ages. I went away and checked out some stuff and came back and you guys were still queuing. Yeah. And I think we were talking between us that we were going to, we wanted to, there was some, a walking dead uh, person. I think, I think Dale was there perhaps. Um, and we said, oh, we should try and meet him. I think we're all saying we should try and meet him. But because we were queuing up for ages, it was, that, that was, we, we missed that, which is really frustrating. So yeah, we went to uh, Destination Star Trek London. It was great. Um, again, yeah, it was just have a great having everything that was just it was just all Star Trek. Um, so we could everything there was just awesome to us. Basically, mm. um, I can't remember if we actually bought. Well, I think we we blew all our money on uh, getting a photo taken with Patrick Stewart, um, myself and my girlfriend. Um, mm. Got a picture taken with him, which was um, it was scary because you don't really, we didn't really think about it when we were queuing up when we were literally like two or three away from the front. I was like, oh my God, I'm actually going to frigging meet Patrick Stewart. And he was so nice to us. And um, he put his arm on my girlfriend's shoulder. And I was like, you lucky git. And I was like, you're never going to wash that, that that shoulder again. And we got a lovely picture with him. Saw him like, later on and got an, we, we got that, that picture autographed. And he was like, thank you very much for taking the picture with us. He was like, you're welcome. Because, um, Captain Picard's my favorite uh, Star Trek character of all time. I think I've mentioned that a billion times, probably. But um, mm. so for me, that was great. Um, and yeah, I think um, 
I've met Walter Koenig. I'm not sure if it was at that or that was another convention. Um, I got his autograph. Uh, got Carl Urban, who was good banter we had with him as well. Yeah, you you, you were you were desperate for him to return as Dread and uh, and making yeah. that very clear to him as well. Yeah, because um, <laughs> also you know we still haven't got a sequel to that. Um, you know, the film is awesome um, with him in it. You know, because mm. he's that good as Dread. But anyway, and he's great as Doctor McCoy, of course. So one of the best things about the JJ films was his Doctor McCoy. Um, absolutely nailed that that character, um, you know, um, channeling DeForest Kelly like perfectly. Um, but yeah, no, it was great fun, expensive, um, great place to get Star Trek merchandise. But uh, a lot of it is quite expensive, isn't it? Yeah, because how it worked was you ended up getting a base ticket, yeah, uh, which was all I could afford, uh, which gives you access to the venue and you get to hear some of the the speakers yes they had a klingon themed bar area they had a gaming area where they were announcing new video games and new tabletop games that you could see which weren't even really available yet yeah and they even had a really cool prop area which had predominantly a lot of enterprise related props that were actually screen used in the show including porthos from when he was sick from a night in sick bay and even a life-size version of one of the suliban cell ships and then you would pay extra for autographs for photographs um there's some speakers who you pay extra for for a ticket to them and then they even had like a giant hall that we we didn't get access to because we didn't buy that ticket but they had all the captains all in one place so william shatner patrick stewart avery brooks kate mulgrew and scott Bakula. yeah all in one place and that was stupidly expensive but when it comes to photos and signings in my experience it's yeah. cheaper to get the autograph. Yes. And you typically get more time with them. You've actually got time to actually ask them a question. Whereas when it's a photo, it's a very kind of, you're funneled in and it's like, next. And that was happening a lot, even with the Jerry Ryan one. And yes. I only got chance to actually uh, chat with her briefly because the photographer had an issue with his camera and he had to reset everything. Oh, that worked out. Kind of yeah, <laughs> yeah, but otherwise they were kind of funneling through. Uh, we, we've also had conventions. I think she put her arm around you, didn't she? You had an arm on the back, and I was like, yeah. "Oh yeah, man, <laughs> you can't wash ever again." Maybe she injected nanoparticles into your back. That would explain you a know, lot. Maybe like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, we, we've we've got a convention here called Halcon. Uh, that's in Halifax, yeah. in Nova Scotia, and we've had quite a few people. Uh, we've had um, Lavar Burton was here quite recently. Uh, we've had John Delancey uh, a couple of times. He he, he enjoys coming back. Uh, I yeah, yeah. wasn't I wasn't here for uh, the guy who plays Martok, whose name suddenly escapes me. J. G. Hertzler. That's yeah. it. Yeah, he he apparently yeah. was there a year before I I came to to Halifax. Uh, Gates McFadden, who interestingly asked to be there. Oh wow! Because she had heard so many good things from her Star Trek co-stars about what the experience was like there in Halifax at Halcon. Oh, wow. Uh, that she she requested, she asked if she could come. And they were able to announce it a year before. So there was there was a lot of hype and excitement for, for her arrival. That'd be cool. I got a picture with her. In fact, there was a, a friend of mine who had the same Star Trek hoodie that I have, but the medical version. And I had the Red Command version. Oh, so cool. we, we, we both decided to just get a joint photo there with her. She was absolutely wonderful. And uh, I got to speak to her, asking her what it was like coming back to Star Trek. Because so many people have told the story. Yeah, because so many people have told the story 
about how she left the show. Yeah. And it's got modeled over the years. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I said to her, I, I don't, I, I haven't heard what it was like for her to come back when she'd been away from this ensemble cast and then returning. And she said that she hadn't really been asked that before. But she explained that for her, she spent most of the time in her trailer because she just had a kid as well. All right. So it was, it was not quite as you would expect it, I guess, when she came yeah. back. But it was, it was fantastic. And, and, th- and this is the, the thing, obviously. I could, I could talk for a long time about the things that people have said, such as uh, LeVar Burton, who we know as the chief engineer of the Enterprise, admitting to trying to put his phone in a microwave after it got liquid damaged to try and dry it out, thinking that if it's just a second, it'll be fine. And obviously that was a very silly <laughs> kind of thing. And being tricked and duped into admitting this by his wife, <laughs> you know, join, join it. So, That's uh, which was hilarious. Yeah. So I, I could, I could tell stories like this, but they're never going to be as fun as, as hearing them from the actual, the actual people. So I'm not going to sort of do too yeah, much there. I've got- I've got Brent Spiner's um, autograph. I think it was probably at Destination Star Trek London. I don't know if you were in the queue with us or you were doing something else. But um, I, we got, when we got up to the, to the front, I sort of said to him, oh, you know, um, I just want to say that I actually quite like Star Trek Nemesis. Um, and then he was like, oh, I'm glad someone does. <laughs> we both had a little laugh. So, yeah, he, he, he was um, re- uh, really great as well. It's interesting kind of thinking that this is all talking about stuff like Nemesis and so on when it's in the past tense. Uh, I mean, there was obviously for us growing up in the 90s, there was quite a lot of stuff going on whilst all this stuff was airing, whilst we actually had Next Generation on the air and Deep Space Nine and Voyager. And we've called it the golden age before. But did you have any experiences with conventions and the like around that time during the mid 90s? Obviously, I was just a kid for a lot of that. You know, I was in only you know, I was in my teens. You know, um, going in. You know, when we hit the midnight nineties, when it was really at the peak, I think. Um, and you know, my dad wasn't interested in going to a convention. I didn't know loads of mates that um, you know would have would have been wanting to go to a convention. Plus, I lived in like a seaside town. You know, in Essex, um, there's no conventions there. Um, I think. I don't really know what ones were big ones in the UK in the 90s. I think there was ones in Birmingham and maybe there was also some in London, probably more than one in each. So I yeah. never went to one um, in, in, that, in that point in time. I mean, did you go to anything like, like that in that point in time? Not conventions, no. Um, I mean, the, I know that the NEC Arena in Birmingham was one of the big ones outside of yeah. London. Um, and they, I, I, I did go to a CITV one there, but that's a, about yeah. as close to anything like that I've gone. But I did go to Star Trek The Exhibition, which was kind of a, a traveling exhibit that began in 95 and it ran through until 98. And it traveled around the country. I it started, to go to that. Yeah, it started in Edinburgh um, and it went around to all sorts of places like London and Birmingham and Newcastle and Portsmouth. Uh, I think Portsmouth is actually where it ended up. Uh, but they even went to Germany and Ireland for a couple of them as well. And uh, I went there yeah. when it was at the Museum of Science and Industry in Manchester. And that ran from March oh, uh, cool. until July 96. So it was there for a few months. Oh, that's cool. I used to go there quite a bit. They had a lot of stuff on display. So they had a lot of the costumes. They had a bunch of props. 
everything was kind of lit really well and stuff. And, uh, you know, you had all the next generation like touch panels on the wall. And like for context, I think 96, like Generations was out around that point and uh, First Contact. Yeah. Yeah, that would be 96. Yeah, the 95, 96. And also there were the rental videos were coming out and they'd get just a bigger marketing push as the film wouldn't mm. they like, when they're coming out on video yeah yeah and they they had a big shop filled with all sorts of stuff uh i'm pretty sure i remember seeing a, a 3d chess set there as well and they had a bunch of the gold pins and i remember getting some of i still have my gold pins from star trek the exhibition i got a t-shirt from there as well with the enterprise on it and there's even oh, wow. a bag just just the bag that you you bought everything in uh, with the Star Trek The Exhibition logo on it, and I still have that, even now. Oh, that's um, that might be worth something. Possibly. I mean, may- maybe not, but <laughs> but it's, it's interesting <laughs> that it's one of those things that I somehow still have uh, somewhere, and um, I'm I'm just I'm kind of amazed that it's managed to survive this long, really. I don't, I didn't personally. I mean, I knew about the exhibition. It looked absolutely amazing. Um, Again, it was from the Star Trek, the uh, Star Trek Monthly. That um, obviously there was no real like there was internet, but there certainly wasn't like a memory alpha. There was a lot. There was obviously a lot of Star Trek fan sites, but I wasn't really. I didn't really have any access to the internet. Then I think maybe at school I might have. Well, I'm not sure. I even even had used the internet by like '95. Hmm. Probably, probably it might have been around '95. Actually, might be one of the first time I ever used it. But I don't think I was sort of savvy at that point to to sort of realize that there was Star Trek sites to go and look out for. So the magazine was my only basically my, my Star Trek site um, for news and stuff. Oh. So, yeah, I remember seeing it in there. I think they did, they, they uh, would um, they would have a few pages in there, like more than once, I think, of the, the exhibitions and the stuff that was on show, like the costumes and the and the, the studio models that would be on there. And, um, yeah, I really, really wanted to go. But, you know, as I say, I wasn't able to do it because of my age and people mm-hmm. not being able to go with anyone. But um, So, yeah. yeah, you were quite lucky to uh, to go at that time, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I, I lived pretty close to Manchester and I went to school yeah. in Manchester as well, just on, on the outskirts. And I went there quite a few times. I, I got my parents to constantly take me, Right. but I tried to get a job there. They were asking for oh, volunteers. Wow. So it, you know, it wouldn't have been a paid gig at all, but I was just kind of like, okay, I want to do this because you had a load of people walking around in uniform and they were there to answer questions and things. And so I'm there, this little kid with all the Star Trek knowledge going, I want to be the person answering questions and, and to be around all this stuff all the time because it just looked yeah, yeah. phenomenal. Because yeah. this is the first time you're seeing the Star Trek stuff for real in person. It, it makes such a huge difference, especially at that kind of age. But there was a caveat. In order to become a volunteer, like they, they accepted my, my offer, you know, because I was, I was saying, you know, can I volunteer? And they were like, absolutely. Um, we just need to see a picture of you in uniform. And I was like, a, 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 cool. a, a, a picture of me in uniform? They're like, yes. Do you have your own uniform? No, I do not. And they're like, ah, in order to volunteer, you need to provide your own uniform. So my hopes were dashed <laughs> because uniforms, yeah. very expensive. Not cheap. They were, yeah, they still are. Yeah, so all of those volunteers roaming around were people who had bought their own uniforms. And uh, yeah, and so that that was my my hopes and dreams dashed very, very quickly. That is a very sad story. (laughs) But it didn't stop me going back. (laughs) I wish I could remember it in detail. I remember little glimpses of things, like um, they actually had 
Patrick Stewart's command uniform there. And they had some of the Borg costumes there as well. But it was, it was, it was a fun, fun exhibition. And I would love for something like that to, to happen again. In fact, um, do you remember when they were auctioning everything off at Christie's? Like all the props for yes, all the I shows do, yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Uh, 2005 or six, I think I remember this, this happening. Yeah. And do you remember Brent Spiner's, yeah. uh, suggestion? Uh, no. What was that? Well, cause they were trying to sell it because they were losing money. Paramount this was, and they, they were wanting to, to just sell it all and make money. And, and so Brent said to them, you should open up a museum. It was very much like an Indiana Jones thing. This belongs in a museum. Uh, but that was his suggestion <laughs> yeah. that you, you build a museum and then people will just keep coming back and seeing this stuff and you will earn an absolute fortune from it. They said no. Oh, God. They, they thought that was stupid and they just wanted all the money straight away. So, um, yeah, I, I think that would have been fantastic to have had an actual museum for everything. That would have been awesome. I mean, to have a permanent... Um, I mean, obviously there's various museums i mean the the, the famous the famous thing is probably the smithsonian um yeah where um you could uh where it had the the original enterprise studio model and uh always see like every few years there's always a news article pop up saying they've had to re restore that model again it kind of just seems to disintegrate on its own i know it was in quite bad shape when they got it and they completely restored it added lights and effects it looks freaking amazing by the way the big the big model they used on the original series yeah it's filming, really um, model. really worth watching the documentary on that yeah where, there is where... a whole documentary isn't there they restored it yeah yeah um and it's really good it looks great obviously it's it's show, it's also kind of a big com compliment to star trek generally that it's a, is it the only fictional vehicle or spaceship in in uh, the smithsonian which is obviously a museum about a very serious museum about technology and flight and spaceships and stuff. Um, but I think they've acknowledged the impact Star Trek has had on, mm. you know, technology and basically inspiring astronauts and NASA and all that stuff by actually putting the model. And to, to be honest, I'm sure a big factor is, um, you know, a lot of the people that probably work there are probably Star Trek fans. Yeah, and they're probably all employees with their own Star Trek uniforms. Lucky gits. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's one that I wish that I could go to. And that's not the one that's held on the ocean liner ferry. Uh, it's, it's the one that, yes. uh, I forgot what they call that one. And, and Destination, actually, think about it. Destination London is just one of the destination ones. They do a, one for Germany as well. Is it Destination Germany? That's normally where the biggest ones are in Germany, isn't it? Yeah. Like generally, yeah, it's the always been. But yeah. I, I'm uh, gutted that I missed out on uh, Star Trek The Experience in Las Vegas. Because that... Yeah, that was the ultimate version of it, yeah. Yeah, well, that seemed like that was going to be a permanent one, you know, and so it's a shame that it's it's been and gone, really. But they had... And again, like you've said with seeing through Star Trek Monthly magazine, that's where I kind of got to see a lot of it there as well, where they've got giant models of, of all the ships. They had, like, the Enterprise A, the D, they had Voyager, they had some alien ships there as well. They'd recreated the D8 Space Nine promenade so you could actually go to Quarks, which uh, which wow, looks that's like, so cool. Yeah, which I would have loved to have done. They also had some 4D experiences, so they're basically 3D movies, but you get to walk around and there's actual actors there. So they had Klingon Encounter, where you are on the bridge of the Enterprise D, and you get to see on the view screen, you know, Klingons kind of attacking the ship and so on. And then they did Star Trek. Uh, Borg Invasion, which is all based on Voyager and the Borg, and so you, you had 
Alice Queege returning as the the Borg Queen. Well, that is cool. And you had a bunch of actors running around in Borg costumes, like the proper first contact style. And the footage for these has been released online. So even though I've not been able to go and experience it, you can find it. I think I saw it on YouTube. And, you know, given the budget that they would normally have for these things, for, for what's effectively a ride, uh, it's not too bad. And you've got uh, Robert Picardo returning as the EMH as well, who's the one who's conversing with you uh, through everything, uh, which is kind of fun. But yeah, that, that's, that's the one that I would have loved to have, have gone to. Did, did you ever sort of have hopes and dreams of seeing it yourself? Did you know much about uh, the experience? Oh, yeah. God, God yeah. I mean, um, like you've already said, it was in kind of um, Star Trek Monthly all the time, you know, every episode, every um, issue for, for a certain point around, I think, 96. They were showing, uh, there was always a competition to win a trip to it. I think I mm. might have entered it like, like once or twice. Um, they they show looked, pictures of people who got married there as well? Yeah, yeah. It looked absolutely amazing. Um and it was basically like the closest thing you'll get to being to, to like a museum. Well, it mm. was really a museum, wasn't it? And also kind of being in an episode or being on the sets, if you could ever visit the real sets. Yeah. That's the next best thing because they were recreated really well. And then there's like I said, it was a Star Trek kind of ride. And it's a shame because a lot of those kind of rides that are based on big franchises, you can't really recreate those by just watching them on the TV. But mm. And sometimes it's difficult to get footage of them. Um, I mean, obviously people have posted it to YouTube now, what, what it was like to be on the experience. But... Um, like there's another one that's quite similar, which is uh, like the Terminator Two 3D ride in the nineties. Mm. Um, that I really wanted to do as well, but you would not see any footage of it, and it basically was a sequel to Terminator Two. Um, but now you can you can go on YouTube and people have posted like you know um, people that actually went through the ride and were recording it. Um, it's closed now, so you can't go on it. Um, yeah, same yeah. same with the Aliens one, which I did go on at Granada Studios tour yeah. in Manchester. Uh, yeah. they, they had one for aliens and you're in one of the APCs and stuff going about. Uh, there, there, yeah. is... there was a bunch of those, yeah. There's the Back to the Future one. That you know, I think that's still probably going. At Universal no, it, it closed down. Yeah. yeah, that one closed down oh, a really? long time yeah. ago. Yeah, sadly. Because uh, you would have been rather fond of that one. That was one that I'd asked my father if I could go to. And it's just like, no, we, we, we can't just go to America. That's, <laughs> that's, that, that costs a lot of money. Yeah. We, we can't. So uh, that one I, I never got to. No. Um, <laughs> But there, there was also the fan productions for New Voyages and Star Trek Continues. And they had yes. opened up their sets of the original series bridge, which were supposed to be very accurate reproductions so that you could go through and see what it was like being on the Desilu sound stages and seeing all the sets there, which... Sure, isn't it? Is that still set up so you can go... I believe like so. thing. Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to double check. You know, uh, people listening to the show, you can probably let us know um, if. Uh, yeah, I, and, and I think I'll watch like a, a video on it on YouTube where they're like because they obviously built all this stuff, but then they realise well it'd be a shame just to pack it all away. You know, when we're not doing an episode, we should hmm. just have it open. Because it's the only it's the only real recreation of the set that people hmm. could just that could be constantly be available for people to turn up and visit. So yeah, it's, yeah, that's really cool. It's not just building the ship to look like the ship, it's building the set as it was in the blueprints for the set itself. Yeah. Which is which is absolutely yeah. huge. And often when they would rebuild the set, um, if there was an episode where they would rebuild the set, like in the episode, the Scotty episode in Next Generation, they would often only do like three quarters of the set and they won't rebuild the whole thing. I think on the, the uh, Mirror Universe Star Trek Enterprise episode, I think they built the entire thing and that's the only time they've redone the whole set, but 
normally it would just be a little bit of it. So the continues uh, guys, um, yeah, they they did an amazing job um, yeah. rebuilding that whole thing. Yeah, so that that's something that I'd, I'd certainly like to see as well. But whilst we're talking about the original series, why don't we move on and talk about an original series episode? Indeed, we've been talking about the original series, so we should probably talk about the original series. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we're, we're picking up the season one episode, The Galileo 7, uh, which was episode 13. Some people are thinking, oh God, have I got to watch the previous six Galileo episodes before this? <laughs> no, you understand where the name comes from shortly. <laughs> <laughs> but this is one of those ones where the, the captain's log really explains a lot, because if you miss it, which when I was just rewatching it, I kind of missed the beginning bit. And I was just wondering, like, okay, remind me who this guy is because it's been a while since I've seen this episode. And then uh, when I just rewound back, it, so much of the plot is just in that opening log where it says that they're en route to Marcus 3 with a cargo of medical supplies. Our course leads us past Murasaki 312, a quasar-like formation. Yes. Vague, undefined. A priceless opportunity for scientific investigation. On board is Galactic High Commissioner Ferris, overseeing the delivery of the medicines to Macus Three. Yeah, and he and he literally like minces onto the bridge. This uh, this Federation dude um, mm. and um, ambassador and straight of High Commissioner, whatever that is. <laughs> well, um, and straight away the way he walks on, you just know this guy's going to be a dick. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I mean, he that the name Galactic High Commissioner came about because the name United Federation of Planets hadn't been created yet. That wasn't right, yeah. until later on. It was like two years later that they used the term yes. Federation High Commissioner for it. Yeah, um, rather than Galactic. But that's kind of he, he's supposed to be a big chief, but he comes on in what looks like an Enterprise uniform with a cape. Interesting. I mean, like a lot of the federal, like, like people need to bear in mind with this episode. This is mid first season. Mm. A lot of the idea of there being a federation, even elements of Starfleet, um, are quite nebulous still at this point. And like the ranking of high up people, and a lot of this stuff we wouldn't actually ever see again, really, yeah. in later series. Even scientific terms, which we'll come across uh, later on as we as we go through the episode uh, as yeah. well. Um, but uh, he. he this this guy comes in, like you say, bit of a dick, uh, but <laughs> he kind of has a point because Kirk's... Oh, un- yeah, totally, yeah. Yeah, because Kirk's under orders to investigate all quasars and quasar-like phenomena, okay, which is which is fine, but they, they are prioritizing exploration over medical supplies for a plague. Yeah. When I was a kid, like, um, obviously you don't really think about that stuff. You think, oh, okay, that's an interesting Jeopardy plot for them then. Hmm. But, like, that's ridiculous. Like, surely, just just call up Starfleet and be like, I don't know if they're maybe too far away or something. Hmm. But, like, okay, we, we know, we just ask, you know, we're, we're officially supposed to investigate quasars, but we're kind of, there's, there's a whole, like, outbreak of a disease going on that we're kind of mainly supposed to be dealing with. I'm guessing I've got to do that first, right? Let us know. Cheers. Um, yeah, it doesn't make any sense why a quasar would be a priority over any other possible thing that might come up that's life-threatening. Yeah, it's like finding it's out that the weird. COVID vaccine has, has been delayed because somebody's stopping to look at a pack of lions. Yeah, or like, oh, there's a rare breed of ant that's uh, <laughs> on this hill that I'm walking on. I'm gonna, we have to hold off on giving that COVID vaccine to this village down the road. We've got to investigate this first. Yeah. It's, it's, 
Yeah, it doesn't hold up well. No. Um, it probably didn't then, really. Yeah, and Kirk's logic is that the rendezvous is supposed to be in, in, uh, in five days, and the trip to Macus will only take three. So his reasoning is that he's got 48 hours to study this thing. So he's like, oh, we don't have to be there for five days and stuff. It's like, well, surely if the, the medical supplies arrives two days earlier, that's better? I'd probably get that stuff there first, and then you can do whatever mm. you want afterwards. You know where this quasar is? Pop back to it. It's not going to go away. No, that's it. You know? <laughs> just, yeah, just turn around it's and come back really, later. The whole, the whole scenario completely breaks down <laughs> when you when you really you don't even think about it. We're not being. I don't think we're being massively nitpicky. It's just that I think maybe they should have chose a different reason. Like maybe, I mean, this is used later on, I think, with that Ambassador Fox dude in, the, mm. in, in, a, in a later episode. Very similar character, grumpy Ambassador dude that's, that's annoying. Mm. Um, but this one's got a good, a good reason, a Ferris. But use a different excuse. Maybe you're just trying to get him to a treaty signing. Yeah, you know, at least then no one's going to die because you're <laughs> delaying for a couple of couple of days. You know, um, really silly like um, setup, really for the episode. Mm. Unfortunately, and it really doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Yeah, but they they, they end up with launching the shuttlecraft Galileo with seven crew members. So we've got. The three that we already know, which is Spock, Scotty, and McCoy. Uh, and then we've got some lieutenants as well. Uh, so we've got Latimer and Gaetano, and we've got Boma. And then there's also a red shirt, Yeoman Mears. We haven't met any of these other characters before. These no. just obviously Scotty, McCoy, and Spock. So there, you straight away probably know they're going to be expendable to some, to some degree. Uh, there's it's quite a variety of department colors as well, because Boma's with the, the science uh, Latimer and Gaetano are part of uh, Commander Ops, and then obviously you've got McCoy as medical, Scotty as engineer. Like it's it's what you would expect from an away team. Yes, you know it's it's a good breakout of uh, of different things. I I, I think that it's it's selected well. I think um, is this probably the first episode where a shuttlecraft is used? I don't think there was any concept of the ship having shuttlecraft. Well, she has the bay's been was was, mm. on, was on the model assuming that's what they always thought it was going to be used for. But, yeah, I think this might be the first time a shuttlecraft appears in Star Possibly, because there aren't many, because this one is has the registry 1701-7. Yes. Uh, because there's there's multiple shuttles. We later see the Columbus, which was slash two. Uh, and yep. then uh, beyond that, there's only also the Einstein, which was slash six that we saw. Uh, there's been a bunch of other ones that have kind of been listed. Like there's been uh, the Slash 3, 4, 12, and I think there was 9 as well. Those were all from the animated series. Yeah, and also like the name Galileo is used. It's kind of the, the, the name you think of most when you think of the shuttlecraft from the Enterprise, isn't it? Because we see mm. another one, the Enterprise A, um, mostly, well, pretty much all in Star Trek V. Um, the shuttlecraft Galileo as uh, a shuttlecraft Galileo on the Enterprise A that is used heavily in that film. Um, a really awesome studio model for that as well, and set mm. that they built for that for that ship that got shuttlecraft that got reused in the Next Generation. Really. And uh, you see a Copernicus as well in Star Trek Five, I think, like later on. Um, yeah. So yeah, Galileo is a thing that gets re. I don't think the Enterprise D had a Galileo. Could be wrong, but I seem to recall other names on Voyager. I think there, um, I think there may be right. there was one that had a two after it, so I think there may have been a Galileo two. Yeah. But yeah. Um, but yeah, so they they end up heading towards this thing that takes far more priority than a plague, 
and radiation starting to yes. increase. Uh, so they start sending out a distress call. So already they've barely left the ship and they're already it's already going south very, very quickly. Yes. The distress call is only coming through partially and Sulu is having trouble making sense of, uh, of the readings and so on. And there's a brilliant line from Kirk as this is all kind of, because this is all the teaser, right? There's a brilliant line as, uh, you know, as he's arguing a little bit with Ferris and he, he points out that finding a needle in a haystack would be child's play. Yeah. You know, compared to trying to find this shuttle. So, yeah, not, not, the, not the best way to start an away mission. The scope is already firmly established that everything is effed, basically, mm. straight off the bat. And it shows this is this is whole sh- charade was a bad idea. Just launch a probe, go go and do your your, your medicine mission, and come back, and then yeah. you could strand people on a planet afterwards and have lo- yeah. all the time you need to find them again. Yeah. yeah, and and again, Ferris then blames Kirk for losing his crew and points out that it's because of the deviation. Had they not done that, he wouldn't have lost the crew immediately. And again... Completely right. Yeah, he has a point. Like, I'm completely on board with this guy. As much as you know he's supposed to be somebody who's there just to be a nuisance, it's perfectly valid. (laughs) Yeah, he's... uh... Yeah, the whole whole setup is just a little bit ridiculous. Thankfully, Mm. you know, the episode holds up really well, but if you, you kind of have to ignore the whole... You know they're they're abandoning like practically abandoning a uh, a mercy mission just to just to look at a quasar. You know it's, yeah. it's silly. It's a bit silly. Yeah, and, and inside this whole quasar, they've managed to discover an M class planet that's not been explored before, and uh, it's Taurus Two, I recall. And they crash land. Yes, there. it is. Taurus yeah, two. that's where they crash landed there. Uh, McCoy immediately does his thing of treating all the injured and checking everything and, and finds that the planet is breathable, uh, but not a great place to to really be stranded. Not somewhere that he would want to vacation. A, a really funny thing as well was, uh, this is like a stupid thing to notice, but um, when I was watching it on um, on, on Netflix, obviously a much higher high re- re- resolution version than I would have been grown up with, you know, BBC Two repeats and all that. Like, yeah, it's all the remastered ones now, yeah. It's the remastered ones are on there, but on uh, Boma had a nosebleed, but is the the color of the blood is practically pink. So I'm like, oh my god, is this dude a really a Klingon? Um, and, just, <laughs> and if you look at the color of his blood, that's interesting because yeah. on mine, I'm pretty sure it was. It, I remember it just being normal red. Yeah, I guess so. Maybe that's a Netflix thing. Now, the color timing. Yeah, I used to have Netflix. I don't have Netflix now. I I discontinued that. I have Crave. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that's interesting, I'm gonna I'm gonna um, ask something about it with you later on, uh, but our version is in sixteen by nine. Netflix was in four by three. Was yours still four by three? Yes, it was. Yeah, mine's in a cropped widescreen resolution. I hate that. Yeah, well, I was recently. I've been. Um, I'm a big Sim- Simpsons fan, and uh, you probably know not know this, but yeah, um, Disney Plus for a while. Um, all of the Simpsons episodes, the early ones before they did actually did sixteen by nine Simpsons, uh, were cropped, and it was only after a big outcry that they actually allowed you to have them as four by three, um, because mm. there's actual genuine bits of comedy that require the whole frame to be visible, otherwise the context is gone. So, so I mean, a lot of those jokes that were involved that I had already seen, you know, when I watched it when it was first shown, so I knew, mm. you know, what was supposed to be seen. But for people that are new, they're going to miss entire jokes. In the Simpsons, yeah. if they were used to watching the, those 16 by 9s that's how annoying it is. 
Yeah, the Back to the Future 2 DVDs were recalled because of a framing issue that did the exact same thing. For the full frame ones. Yeah, because it was filmed in 4x3 and then they letterboxed it, but they letterboxed it wrong on the DVDs. Uh, I still have that one that was recalled. Yeah, there's um, Transformers the Movies had a big thing over the years where um, there's issues with that being cropped too much or not enough because that was filmed in, well, it's not filmed, it was animated. It was animated in 4x3 in, in the 80s. And for the cinema, they were just matte uh, off the, the top and the bottom to make a 16 by 9 version. Mm. But for e- almost like a couple of decades, the, the video releases had always completely botched that if they were trying to make a 16 by 9 version of it. Now they've got it right when in recent sort of Blu-ray re-release, re- it looks really good. But I remember like for years, we were always complaining, like, God, when are they going to do a proper, a really good 16 by 9 Transformers movie? I was just thinking, <laughs> I think um, movie studios weren't used to people complaining up until then. <laughs> uh, so now they're a bit more, you know what I mean? The people are a lot more paranoid. They're a lot more paranoid about fan bases now. Like, oh god, we have to make. It sure was a lot harder story. to yeah. write a letter and post it through a postbox than it is just to type yeah. something on Twitter. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> people just complain. They'd be like, whatever, and we don't care. Just buy our DVD. <laughs> yeah. So going back to Taurus Two, Spock's not hopeful of rescue, and uh, and points out that he figures that they'll be there a long time. Then we're kind of back on the Enterprise, and they're testing. And this, this I think, is a really neat idea for them to do, especially so early on in subject. They're testing the transporters with inanimate objects, and uh, they don't come back good. And uh, they, they, they kind of point out, we wouldn't want to test this with people. And I love it's, that you Yeah, know- I think it's interesting because um, this is probably the first time that we see that there can be issues with the transport. And now you kind of, it gets a bit tiresome, doesn't it? Oh, the transport was not working. We haven't we've seen that before. <laughs> uh, but then that was an interesting way to show that they're not this un- infallible, amazing mm. bit of technology. If there's some like weird phenomena going on near your ship, it could screw those up. And then you're back to using shuttlecrafts. Um, so yeah. that also explains why you have shuttlecrafts. And yeah, and it also gave rise to the idea of you could really get some gruesome stuff happen if you're transported and something goes wrong. Mm. And you don't even get to see how bad it is. It's just a voiceover, which I think is the best way to have done this, in all honesty. Yes, it is. Leave it to your imagination. It's cheaper, but it also is more effective because you don't see it and how bad it could be if it was with people. Uh, It's not really until the the motion picture that you start to get a sense as to how bad that could be. Well, that's Um, when the first time they actually tried to, they actually showed it. Yeah. Um, not like you know, the body afterwards though if you read the novel of the, the motion picture there's this, like, quite a graphic description of what happened to uh, is it, I, can't, I can't remember the names of the characters that were beaming over but like, I think they, they materialised inside out which is mm. horrendous yeah. um, and died instantly uh, yeah it, it's gross it's like the, I think in the Delphic Expanse that happens to you as well yeah. I think they said that didn't they oh, there's, the ship came back with everybody inside out <laughs> lovely <laughs> He said everyone came back and they were anatomically inverted. And <laughs> That's like, it, yes. They were inside out. Someone says to him. Like, anatomically yeah. inverted, yes, of course. That's yes, a good no. way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, uh, this is also an interesting moment that I, I, I made a note of because Ferris turns around. And you know how I said that his uniform was basically an Enterprise uniform with a cape? Yes. As he turns around, you realize it's not a cape. He's just got very fancy sleeves. They've kind of got wings I mean, on them yeah. that dangle off. What is that? That's like what such a ambassadors costume. were in the future. What is oh. that? How does that help you? What kind of practical use is that? I'm, I'm glad it's, it's like not a costume design that, that carried on. 
I'm glad that they dropped that. <laughs> yeah, not not a good look, is it, on an ambassador? And uh, and he starts arguing with Kirk about you know when they're going to leave. So Kirk decides to send out Shotcraft Two, which would be the Columbus, uh, out uh, to to do stuff. And the shuttles themselves, I I really love. I mean, they're they're obviously very basic at this point compared to the later ones. But McCoy steps out of the shuttle. And there's a plank that comes down. So there's doors at the top that kind of open sideways, like a lot of the automatic doors. But then yeah. the bottom half, or I'd say bottom third, kind of comes down and there's a plank that then rests on the nacelle. So you can just step out. So it's just it's really ergonomic in that regard. There's a those, bunch those of doors are great. I love watching mm. that door action is really satisfying to watch. <laughs> you see it a lot in that episode. They're constantly going in and out of that shuttlecraft. And it just looks futuristic and practical and cool. Mm. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, and we know that all the doors have been done with strings and, and stuff and pulleys. Yeah. In, in yeah. But it's still, it looks slick, especially with the just the housing of it. And then they've got... The, 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 it's so effortless and they don't really treat mm. it in any cool, futuristic way. It's just a box, it's just a door that's opening for them, you know. Yeah. It just looks really cool. And also, in general as well, probably should have mentioned this earlier, but... Um, the shuttlecraft design obviously is a pretty iconic design in, in Star Trek generally and it hasn't really changed um, mm. since that. You know, the, the shape and the idea of where the nacelles sit and all that stuff has been used, you know, throughout every series really up until now. Yeah. Yeah. Even the ones that aren't warp capable still have, yeah. you know, a similar looking design. But the, um, yeah. they've also got like this really neat panel that's open, which has a ton of exposed piping. And on the, the wing, there's just an assortment, just a multitude of different engineering tool props, which uh, are just great to see just that much there. I mean, that's that of the whole, I mean, obviously it's a huge sort of, um, I think it's a literally a natural like model, isn't it? Like a life-size model that they built, mm. um, the outside at least. I don't know if they use the same for, and obviously it's probably just a set, a dress set for the inside, mm. but it just looks cool. It looks real. You get... Um, it really helps with the immersion. Um, it doesn't look like it's made out of cardboard, and probably is, but um, it looks great. Uh, it blends really well. It's um, it just the sense of scale really adds to the sense mm. of scale of the Enterprise as well. Yeah, you know, you get a lot of an idea of how big things are for the first time in in in, in the series, and just the detailing and like you know the the logo on the side, the Delta, and it just looks great. It's an amazing set for the time um, as well. Yeah. I mean, the inside is a bit boxy and bare, especially kind of just the floor. But it, you know, as you say, for the time. And there's also, I'm going to try and put a link to this in the show notes. But there's also a brilliant documentary of uh, of restoring the original set piece as well. Oh, really? That's cool. Yeah. So McCoy's, anyway, he's, he stepped out and he, he's assuming that, Spock would love command because it's all about logic and so on. And and Spock's kind of disagreeing. Uh, what was it he was saying that it was it was something like it's just simply there's things that are just logical and so it just it just exists. It just happens to be a thing. It's not something that he's striving for. Yeah, it's um, it, it's amazing how much like things are established in in this episode, mm. isn't it? Really? Yeah. It's just that's another thing that you can add on there. Like, like there's the idea of a shuttlecraft already said, the idea of there's ambassadors and stuff. And like, I don't think it gets that really, the, a lot of that stuff isn't really appreciated about this episode, perhaps. I think it, looking back on it, it's amazing how much is still, it, to this mm. day, is in Star Trek from this episode, really. 
Yeah, and it really kind of sets that tone and for the whole episode, just this whole this whole idea about whether Spock wants command or not. Yeah, and I think even that, even in the JJ films, you know, is an experienced character even in those. But I think it's it's actually directly addressed if you want. I think in Into Darkness, isn't it? Um, Kirk actually sort of questions him, saying, "Oh, you wanted to to be the captain of the Enterprise? All good, well, well done. It's now yours or something." And he says, "Oh no, I'm not. I'm not the captain." Um, I'm not interested in 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 that. So, and and there's a lot of character development for Spock in this. And one thing that does actually so kind of great on me now is how they kind of how they get annoyed by him, even though it's just he's just, he's he's the Vulcan. You know, he's going to be a bit dry and a bit blunt. But I think that's what you need in that sit in that situation. And sometimes I find that the rest of the crew is a bit unhelpful and a bit uncharitable <laughs> toward him, almost mm. borderline right racist. Well, saying, oh, why can't you be a jolly, fun human like the rest of us, you know, and be, use your heart and emotions. And he's like, dude, I'm just I'm trying to be like, like as, as hard, harsh as it is, we need to be serious to get things done. You just have to deal with it. You know, it's like, they need, I find that a bit annoying. Yeah, I would argue that it's because of just his cold callousness that comes from Scotty pointing out that they don't have enough fuel and that they would need to lose 500 pounds in weight yeah. to be able to take off. And Spock's immediate reaction is that that's the equivalent of three people. Yeah, exactly. And McCoy has to say equipment, yeah. Yeah, like not what can we strip from the ship. It's just like that's three people. And then he realizes that that choice would be his. He feels it would yeah. be a logical choice and that making that through logical means is better than just drawing lots. You know, because one of, uh, I think it was Bomer wanted to just have them basically pick a short straw. And Spock doesn't feel that that's the best way to do it. And he's obviously in command of that choice. Yeah, you're suggesting that if he was going to make that decision, he would probably make a logical decision based on the, like how fit and healthy the particular people are in terms of you know who would have the best chance of survival on their own. So I, you would think the plan would, would, end up, would have ended up being, yeah, well, we'll have to pick three people. Who Does anybody volunteer would be a first thing, I suppose? And two, who would be the best? But if no one did, I'd be like, well, I'll just have to pick the people that I think would have the highest chance of survival. They probably would try and scout somewhere for him to set up a camp. I'm sure he wouldn't just leave them there. He's pretty good. You know, he's a great commander, Spock. So he would have, look, let's find a cave. Let's find a place you can, like, hole up for a few days at worst. And I'm sure mm. the plan would be to get back to the Enterprise um, as soon as we can, and then we'll just come back for you. So he wouldn't have just dumped them there. You know, he's better than that. But it is... It just shows that he's trying to think ahead at the earliest opportunity. And yeah, um, it's just, prank, like you say, pragmatic and practical and a bit callous about it. But kind of the situation requires that to a degree, unfortunately. Yeah. And he, he then sends out two gold shirts. Uh, so he, he sends out Latimer and uh, Gaetano. And I remember watching this and just thinking, oh, man, they're so dead. Yeah, so, so dead. It's just the, the trope has <laughs> been set up perfectly. Yeah, but um, the thing is, think, the yeah. trope is always that it's the red shirts that die. And in this one, we've got uh, the yeoman, we've also got Scotty. But, uh, and I'm going to link to this in the show notes as well. There's a brilliant breakdown, and it's been done by a few people, but EC Henry on YouTube, I think, has the best breakdown of it. How red shirts are not the most dangerous color to wear they are actually the safest. All oh, right. Then it's because of the percentage of red shirts that have died. And, and this, this includes both if you're taking it as just on the ship or as an away team or both. 
Yeah. But when you see that most of the crew is staffed by red shirts and you take in the percentage of how many of each department color have died, gold is actually the most dangerous shirt color to wear. And so you've got oh, these right. two guys. And these guys, actually, in this episode, pretty much prove that. Because uh, Lanama and, uh, and Gaetano, they go out and they're scared by all this noise that's in this fog. And they, they, they do the smart thing and they opt to, to get out of there. Pretty sharpish. Yeah. And then there's this monster with a spear, which I guess would be a Torian, I guess. Um, yeah, I don't they really say her name of a race, although I get it no. right by default, yeah. Yeah. I, I get I get shades of um the Empire Strikes Back when you've got um mm. the Wampa. Where you don't yeah. really see anything, you just hear noises, maybe you see just a bit of the back and a bit of the head. It's really effective what they do in this episode to establish these huge, like kind of brutes. Mm. really um we kind of really see their faces or anything we just see fur really but we're not sure if that's just they're wearing that i think it just look, looks like they're just wearing it but yeah um and size they have, like their size is they really do a good job of, of expressing that as well mm. and one of them ends up throwing a spear and killing latimer he gets stabbed in the back with one and just falls to his death and then there's, there's a, a giant a, spear yeah and Gaetano, there's a brilliant shot of him just firing blindly in the fog, just constantly just yeah. aiming and just shooting and stuff just before it cuts to what would be uh, commercials at that point. Um, but I thought that was a, a terrific, like you say, they're not showing much about these creatures and it just builds up that suspense and danger in a way that still holds up very, very well. Far better than, than than showing them to a huge degree. It's not like you know the xenomorph in the first mm. alien film. It's just great that um, we don't need to see the the, the aliens really. And um, if we did, I think it would ruin the suspense. If we saw them talking to each other in another scene and planning how we're going to kill those humans and eat them or whatever, mm. um, it would just be a bit cheesy. Especially like probably in the sixties when they wouldn't have had a great amount of scope for costuming and cool looking facial like, like appliances to make them look menacing. Um, yeah. It was better to just do that and not actually show them, and it, it increases the suspense and the jeopardy more than if they showed mm. them. Yeah, yeah. And then you got Spock and Boma both finding uh, Gaetano and and Latimer's sadly dead body, and Spock just without, I mean, obviously without emotion because Spock, uh, but just yanks the spear yeah. out of him. At least, and this yeah. is what I wanted to ask you about because at least. I'm assuming he's yanking it out of his back because it's covered in blood. But in the 16 by 9 framing, you don't see his body at all. No. Um, Do you see it in the 4 by 3 Or is it still cut off? No, no, you don't. You see a little bit more of the spear, but you don't see it in his back. I mean, I guess it would have been difficult to show that on screen, you know. Um, and probably too gory as well, perhaps. Mm. Um, so you don't see it at all. You just see the, the stem of it. Um, and he just he just sort of like, grabs it and, and and takes it out so yeah um no you don't see any more um I, like yeah it would have been too gory i think to show that and it's the, the episode's not really about that it's mm. enough to see it perhaps it's better like you said use your imagination is probably worse right yeah than actually seeing it yeah i mentioned earlier about some of the scientific terms that are, are used in this episode which like later on in more modern series you would probably talk about rerouting all power or rerouting emergency power to something. And in, the, in this one, Kirk commands them to use overload power on the transporters. Yeah, what does that even mean? <laughs> it's, uh, well, it's obviously emergency power. Blow up the transporters. <laughs> yeah, we're just going to yeah. use overload power. But 
it's yeah. interesting seeing some of these early sci-fi te like technical phrases before there'd been an established set of uh, things, really. I mean, obviously, it's just reroute the power, isn't it? Or go to auxiliary power is kind of the term that would like yeah, be auxiliary, the normal yeah. version of that. Yeah. But yeah, that, again, it's like th these things are still very much in flux at the moment. Mm. Um, the writers just putting down, they haven't got a Bible to reference like they often would in later Star Trek series or Memory Alpha mm. to look that stuff up. They're literally just using whatever, you know, sounds like an appropriate term to use mm. on yeah. the spot. Um, and it's interesting, yeah. It sounds like it's going to blow it up, though. That's the only thing, like, <laughs> overload. Use use explosion power to get get the transporters to work. <laughs> uh, I like that there's all this stuff because you kind of you you're cutting to the Enterprise just for these very small bits where it's kind of like they're still trying. There's just there's complications, uh, and then we're back to to the planet, and Spock is trying to rationalize just leaving someone behind, and it's really the very first time you see him essentially talking about what is the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few, which we see a lot later on. Yeah, and um, it's just it just really hammers home how Spock uses logic for everything, even in very grim situations. But again, I, I don't feel like that's bad. I kind of feel like it's, it's great, but it's probably helpful to be able to sort of dispassionately make really difficult decisions like that if you can just turn to logic and just use that to guide you. So I, I think Spock would be a great person to be trapped in a situation like this with because he can just make those decisions without really wrestling with them too much. And you could probably get things done a lot more quickly. I mean, the, the other crew on the shuttlecraft are obviously a lot more emotional, a lot more panicked and kind of uh, traumatized by the situation. So there, and, and potentially that could, you know, if you're struggling on those decisions, and it was just a bunch of humans, and they didn't have a Vulcan that could do, deal with that. Um, you could potentially jeopardize everybody else by hesitating uh, with these sort of thoughts. And they're not nice. They're not saying they are nice, but someone like yeah. Spock basically means you can get past these moments and you know get work done. And hopefully, I think it increases your chances of survival. Yeah, uh, one of the the big things that they have though is that we've seen it in later shows where they're kind of like you know we will mourn those that we've lost later just we've got to get through this now and yeah. it's because spark with this being his first real command um doesn't do that and i think that's what rubs everybody the wrong way because boma is insisting on just taking a moment just for a funeral for somebody that they've lost and that as the commanding officer spock should be providing words so spark then just kind of decides to delegate to mccoy who he feels would know appropriate words to say. And I think this is really just Spock being out of his depth for what to do in that kind of situation. Yeah, I mean, I guess like a good comparison, like when you see like Tuvok, like um, mm. especially in like probably the episode, I think Innocence, when he's trapped on that planet with a bunch of children uh, who turn out they might not be children, but I don't want to ruin the episode for anybody, but quite quite a, a low key, but actually quite a good episode. A lot of people hate it though, um, weirdly, but yeah. Um, He's a lot, and obviously he's dealing with children, but he's a lot more, even though he's a full Vulcan, unlike Spock, he actually deals a lot better with uh, emotions and how to sort of keep people calm and, and all of that stuff in a, in a Vulcan way. But you could argue that he's like, he's like in his 90s. I think, yeah, he's, I was going to say he's a yeah. lot older. Uh, one thing that yeah. I, I thought about, though, when I was watching this was that we don't really know much about Vulcan 
funeral rituals. I mean, we know about Klingon rituals and Bajoran and so on. Uh, but the Vulcan ones, we don't really know much about. I mean, there was, uh, I know that Neelix um, kind of brought up in Tuvix about the Vulcan funeral dirge, which Q's son <laughs> yeah. had said was, yeah. basically said it was boring. And that's so funny, that bit. That's, I love that bit. That's where it's literally Neelix is like, oh, this is really lovely Vulcan song. and let, let me sing it to you. And he sings these really pretty little l- lyrics. And then two says, that is actually a Vulcan funeral dirge. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> but there's also uh, in the episode Demon, when the doctor refuses to turn the lights off in sick pay to let people sleep. And so Neelix threatens to sing <laughs> a Vulcan dirge <laughs> along with some Klingon opera and something else. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and then the, the doctor relents. But <laughs> it's is good with Vulcan funeral dirges. He's like an authority. He wrote the fucking <laughs> Probably wrote the, 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 the memory article, the memory alpha article on it, or something. It's like it's yeah. yeah. It's but I, I, I feel, I feel like we've learned more about Vulcan funeral rituals from a Talaxian than we have from any actual Vulcan. Yeah, we don't. We all I mean the only Vulcan that dies, the Logic Spock, and he just gets bagpipes and gets fired off into space. And that, that's so, a human ritual. You know, but we, no, yeah. Sarek, Sarek dies as well. But we don't see yes, what yes. that ritual is like. That's the thing. We we don't know yeah. how they how they do it. You know, I mean, I on, think he dies of like Panar Panar syndrome. Yeah, um, yeah, it just dies in his um, bed effectively. And yeah, uh, not long. We just find out about it. Visits him. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we don't really know what it's like. I don't, I'm pretty sure they don't play bagpipes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Spock is half human, so I guess it's valid. Yeah, I would mean, hazard a guess not. All, all we know is that there is this this beautiful boring dirge, uh, and that's it. Yes. Um, but but McCoy is insisting that it's Spock's place to hold this ceremony that Spock is probably not even familiar with as well at this point. Um, you know, just so that people can at least die with dignity, which is also a very McCoy way of of approaching things. And then Boomer yeah. eventually leaves, and he's looking very dejected about the whole thing. And and this starts to kind of build up on him later on. And then there's an interesting point um, when they cut to Scotty, because Scotty's been kept out of all of this. He's not really involved in, in any of that because he's focusing on the shuttle. And they've got a pressure gauge, like just an old-style pressure gauge, which uh, I thought was kind of neat. Like the, yeah, I mean, Scotty's one that seems to be coping with it the best. He doesn't really panic. Um, he doesn't really get annoyed at Spock's being too Vulcan about everything. Um, he just sort of Spock tells him what to do, and and Scotty just gets on it, which is probably just a demonstration of how good Scotty is. You know, he can just get on with stuff. He's like very mm. focused. But yeah, this is really old school. It's like in Star Trek Six when there's these really stupid looking LCD clocks above mm. the. Uh, I was like, oh wow, they still use like nine segment or whatever it is LCD clocks in, in three hundred years, and also they make pot roasts in Star Trek Six as well. Which is really confusing and a bit stupid, but yeah, it's like, yeah. Well, they've even had a star date counter that was basically just like a, a rotary clock where the yeah. numbers just flip over. But they edited that for the remastered version to be a digital readout at least. Um, yeah. So they, they've they've fixed things in post. Uh, yeah. As time's kind of gone on, uh, but yeah, the the strain from just landing the ship caused them to burst something, so they've lost pressure and all the fuel is gone, which is just great. Annoying. And and then Spark. Just chimes in with, well, that would seem to solve the problem of who to leave behind. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. <laughs> we 
which is well, it's a, just, bit of a dark joke and a bit of humor there, sort of. Yeah, thing. but at the same time, yeah. like it's just it's unemotional and it's perfectly written in that regard. Yeah. It's like you would be frustrated if that's how he was approaching somebody that you served with. But at the same time, like that, that, that it's the Vulcan way. Like, yeah, we're sense. not going anywhere now, so no. we don't have to worry about about yeah. that. But a perfect Vulcan moment, really, that, yeah. Yeah, so then they decide to go after the these giant ape-like creatures, which I think is how Boma described them earlier on. With their interesting predator noise. Yeah, and, and says that they might be tribal, so he's suggesting an attack, and then Spock is wrestling with logic. Uh, you know, it's, it's the logic of, of taking a life. Yes. And everybody on the away team is like, we agree, that's what we should do. And so he's uh, suggesting that there's always the third option, which in this case would just be to fire to scare them rather than shooting them to kill. Yeah, which kind of baffles them for a second because they never even considered that. They're yeah. just straight off like, yeah, let's go and go and kill them all. Um, and Spock just sort of says, well, you can just shoot around them. And they're like, oh, yeah, good point. Um, they're kind of almost reluctantly. Which again, it's a bit disappointing that these Starfleet officers are so, you know, up for just killing a bunch of... Um, aliens that are just going about their business and you know not being there's no malice is mm. there really in what they're doing uh, maybe they're scared of these people that have just crashed on their planet with all this crazy stuff around them yeah spock has that ability to uh, yeah compassion really and just like respect for other life forms in idic kind of a bit of idic you know in diversity mm. and combinations though that hasn't been established as a thing at that point but a hint of that perhaps for the future yeah. And the sequence that you have, because you've got Spock and Bomo and Gaetano, and they they get attacked, and it is really, really very good for the time. Just the tension and just the the just the sequence that went on there, um, the way that they're they're being attacked by this monster from you know, high above, and they're they're shooting up at it. I think it's brilliantly shot. Yeah, and again, you're not really seeing any any detail. You're just seeing. Mainly focusing on, you know, um, them firing at the uh, Torians, mm. um, and uh, you get a little bit of a shot of the of the Torians sort of throwing something around, but again, not long enough for you to really sort of stop and get any details. You know, you can kind of pause and get yeah. a perfect freeze frame. But um, again, you, you, I, I wasn't, I, I didn't see like um, seeing the Torians. I wasn't like, oh my god, what a cheesy, silly looking like sixties alien. Like you probably would with the Gorn, you know. Now mm. um, I didn't really feel that they did look menacing. Even now, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and Spock, I mean, he's climbing a rock face just to get a better view and ordering them to fire and stuff. The, the one thing that really I find bizarre, though, which I think is not great from a command <laughs> decision perspective, is that he decides to leave Gaetano alone. So he and Boma returning to the shuttle, and it's like, oh, okay, well, you don't just leave a man alone in a situation like this. <laughs> That's it's always going to be a bad thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they get back and Scotty's got this plan to use the phasers to use as a source of energy to be able to get the ship to leave, which is interesting because that's their only defense at this point. So do you give up the one thing that you can defend yourself with as a way of trying to escape? It's, it's, it's a very, I think that would be a very conflicting sort of 50-50 for some of the crew. It's it's a really good. Um, I mean, it's not just that particular bit, but generally the episode is a, is a, a really is good at showing how 
you know, in space, if you're stranded, you are really stranded. Okay. You know, you could be stranded on a desert island, but at least, you know, perhaps you've got maybe a few animals to worry about. But in theory, you know, you could probably keep going without, you know, if you've injured. If, if you're good enough to be able to like, you know, make fire and perhaps if it's a nice tropical island, you might not have to worry about that. And you've got you've potentially got water and things to eat. Whereas here, you get really get an impression that you're going to die if you're here for any period of time. Mm. And um, you really feel that tension for them. And, and there's a, hope, a sense of hopelessness as well that comes across really well without them really overly doing it, overly trying to hammer that down at you. So yeah, you really feel stranded, and it's just—it really, really makes you realize how big space is. You know, when <laughs> this episode is probably the first Star Trek episode I think where you really get a sense of that. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and they they kind of still go back to the Enterprise. This again is one of those bits where they kind of flick back and forward, and we find out that the transporters are safe for human transport now. They've sorted through those, but like you say, everything's so big that they're like, we still don't know where they are to even beam them. We can if yes. we find them, but until then, there's not much we can do. And as an audience, we know that there's dangerous aliens on this planet, which they don't necessarily know about at this point. So it's yeah, not a well, good idea, potentially, anyway. Yeah, and well, Gaetano, surprise, surprise, gets attacked. Which I think is the only time where it does look a little bit ropey, because it's, it's very kind of like the old 60s, um, the time machine. You know, based on the yeah. world's novel, where you, you've got the Morlocks and just the way that they move it, it felt a lot like that. So it's a very slow, just approaching him, uh, so they can fade to black. And um, he doesn't look ma- particularly much bigger um, as well. It's <laughs> the fact that you know Gaetano is on the ground, but if he stood up, he'd probably be about the same height as, yeah. as this alien. It's, it's, uh, and they just put a giant like rug on him, you know, um, to sort of make him look like a lot bigger. But yeah, it kind of does. That does kind of ruin the immersion a little bit. That doesn't. It's the only see. time it yeah. does. I would say. Yeah, it's the only time. And they probably does. could have handled that better. They probably could have just shown like a, a Torian approaching, like again, a bit like the Wamper in Empire Strikes Back, and just hear mm. screaming in the background without seeing Gaetano. Then you'll know that something's happened. You know, it's probably the one yeah. disappointing Torian moment. Um, I think yeah. in this, yeah. Uh, and then Spock goes searching for him, and I, I love. Just how it's almost as though McCoy has figured Spock out at this point. Because, like you say, we're midway through season one. And McCoy's kind of pointing out to Boma that Spock will search for Gaetano and then just as easily make him be the one to stay behind. Yeah, so it's like it doesn't work both ways, really, does it? Because, and it seems well, not that for a human. A yeah. It'd be hard for a human to justify that, but. Again, this is it's really just highlighting how different he's he's thinking about things. Yeah, and uh, again, I, so for me, it just a lot of Spock's decisions in this just make me think more and more that he'd be the best person to have in the, in a sort of a crisis like this. There'd be too much emotion if it was. Well, I think it was like Captain Kirk or something. He'd be he probably would be a, annoy them, you know, because he probably would be quite because he's a good commander. He would um, mm. he would understand that we'd have to make some pretty tough decisions and. You know, he'd, he would be more he would be more emotional about it, but I think he would probably do a lot of what Spock um, is doing in this. And also, yeah. if he if it, if it was both of them on there, Kirk would back up everything that Spock suggests. You know, because yeah. he would trust him. Um, and, 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 so, and Kirk has, yeah. has taken responsibility like that 
plenty of times before, which is one of the reasons why he's yeah. regarded the way that he is. Kind of the burden of command, um, yeah. isn't it? I mean, there's a great episode of Voyager where um, I think Tuvok explains that there was a mission where Janeway um, sent a bunch of people to do something on an asteroid and they one of them died. And the next day, Janeway went on her own to that same asteroid to complete the survey because she wanted to show that their suffering wasn't in vain. Mm. And she would be willing to do whatever she would send other people out to do. That's kind of what commanders have to. It just shows that's kind of what they they're trained to accept that they need to do. Yeah, yeah. I think if anything, Spock could probably just vocalize his thought process a bit more than just saying it's logical. <laughs> I think that's where yeah. he loses people there. Yeah. Um, but he manages to find the body, brings him back, uh, gets attacked, and it looks like one of the spears almost genuinely hits Leonard Nimoy. It looks very it's got close the stem to hit of it, him, doesn't it? Bounces yeah. Also. Yeah. It, like, yeah. It just hits the rock, but it looks like it was a very close hit. And, and Leonard's just continuing on. It's just it's it's almost like a casual walk. He's not even phased much by it. They do look a little bit fake, those spears, because I think a few of them sort of land and sort of bounce <laughs> a, yeah. little, a little bit. And you're like, okay, they're probably like a siren or whatever. But um, yeah, yeah, obviously Spock hasn't got, you know, he suppresses his emotions. So he probably doesn't feel anxiety like a human would in that in that situation. Mm. So he can, he's probably, yeah, in a weird way, he probably would be the best person to go and like, you know, get the body and bring it back. Um, and maybe he feels that he owes he owes the crew that because he's got a little bit of yeah. dissent going on, isn't he, with some of his decisions? Yeah. So he's like, right, I'm gonna put I'm, if I put if I put my life on the line for this, will you give me a break? <laughs> you know, at that yeah. point, you and, know. And, so yeah, and it causes him to have a bit of a break because they get back to the shuttle, they're starting to get attacked. Boma's turning hostile, like in like his tone. Yeah, like shouting at him. Yeah, yeah, and Spark is starting to see the situation itself as illogical. He's, he's trying to understand because he's like, I followed logic, yet two men have died. You know, it's almost like he's been uh, coming to the realization that you can do everything right and still make mistakes, which yeah. is actually, now that I think about it, is also something that Picard says later on in <laughs> Next Generation. Um, oh, yeah, to Data, yeah, when he gets depressed yeah. that he lost a chess game or whatever it was. Was it the yeah. chess game? Or, you yeah, can, yeah you can make no mistakes but still lose. Yeah. But again, we, we flip back to the ship. Kirk is saying that all they can do is wait, hopefully, for something to, to happen because their sensors and communications are unreliable. And this is where you get Kirk and Ferris really arguing. And Kirk points out that as he's the captain, he's in command of the ship. But Ferris points out only for two hours and 42 minutes. And then we're on my clock. And he could basically, he's implying that he'll take yeah. over the ship. Yeah. Effectively. Yeah. Which, yeah. Um, which would be interesting because I don't know if that just means he'll just say, go to this, you know, he's not going to take all of Kirk's admin, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, stuff. It's if you just, he'll just point the ship in that direction and order them to do it. Yeah. Which is fair enough, you know. Yeah. And, and again, I don't disagree. It's, Normally you would, but you just no. you don't for reasons we've already discussed. I mean, he's obviously he's portrayed as being quite cold and callous and very like fixated on on his mission. But then his mission is kind of really important, so it's difficult to really yeah. dislike him. He's not massively up being ob obnoxious, mm. or he's not threatening the crew by being mm. obnoxious. He's not like Will Decker, not Will Decker, Matt Decker. Mm. Um, in the Doomsday Machine, you know, who is genuinely yeah. like, you know, like had a breakdown and should be allowed to be in command. This is a guy that's just very, very kind of calmly but firmly telling Kirk that 
You know, we're kind of trying to help people out that are dying. So I guess the idea is that he's quite happy to leave the crew uh, stranded on that mm. planet. Is probably where you'd be like, well, that's, that's that is kind of harsh, but to be honest, Kirk kind of got them into this situation in the first place. Well, maybe not Kirk, maybe the silly plot of, at, at the beginning really yeah. is what did it. Um, but yeah, it's it just another, again, it exposes how silly like the idea is that a quasar would take priority over a, a medical emergency. There's, there's yeah. a really fun scene here where the Again, it's one of those, you don't see it. You don't see all these monsters attacking. I, I would imagine they've only got one suit. The more I think about it, I think there was only one alien costume. Yes, a big old furry suit. I think there was only ever one on screen at any given time. Because they, they start mentioning how they're, they're attacking the shuttle. And you get the impression that there's multiple of them, but you don't see it happening once from outside. But Scotty then uses a wrench or something to short... Uh, some electrical terminals and basically electrify yeah, yeah. Like a panel to basically yeah. electrify the hull electrocute them and scare them off again it's, it was far better to not show the aliens attacking obviously it was probably I'm not sure if it was actually a conscious decision or if it was because of they couldn't really get a bunch of actors in suits and that yeah. didn't look good um, but that has worked out for the better anyway because I think it was better and you perfectly believe that these huge big things could damage the shuttlecraft and you know you don't want them to get in and you know um so yeah, it, it's effective. Yeah, and uh, and then Spock permits the burial to Boma, uh, provided that the creatures allow it. So it works. It works. The electrocute in the hole works. It yeah. scares them off. Yeah, but we we find that the Columbus has landed on the planet somewhere else. They've been attacked by the same creatures, and and in fact, one of the ones who died on that away team was an ensign. And that's the first time that they used the rank of ensign in the show. Yes, it is. Which is almost kind of surprising that it's it took like half a season. Another really important Star Trek first. I mean, obviously we see ensigns mm. all the time, you know, in, in later series, especially in like Next Generation. Yeah, another little, like you kind of, it'll, it'll pass you by really. You don't really think about it, but in the history of Star Trek, really important. Yeah, and, uh, and this is when the time is up. So Ferris takes command, which Kirk doesn't object he you know he accepts that's how it is so he orders kirk to recall the search parties and so kirk makes sure that they're all beamed up and starts to resume a, a course to to Marcus three now there is a really really fun camera pan that you're, you're seeing sulu talk from behind sulu and then the camera just pans around to the front so you're then facing the entire crew um in including Kirk, just head on. And there is a lot of interesting camera work going on on the bridge that I don't recall them really doing in many episodes. Most of these episodes, it's very static shots, whereas there's a lot of movement. Yeah, it's that sort of three-quarter sort of like focused on on like the captain's chair yeah. normally, isn't it? With, with occasional just in front of Sulu or then over to Spock or Uhura. It's very static, yeah. So anything that pans across... It is. It, it, you mm. notice it, don't you? Straight away when you see anything that differs from from that typical shots that they always use on every yeah. episode. Yeah, Absolutely, and the Columbus yeah. is still twenty three minutes, I think it was, uh, away from actually getting to the ship, which again gives you the feeling of just space is vast, you know, and it still takes a, a while. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you know, uh, Mears, the uh, the yeoman, is is still trying to hail the Enterprise and not getting anywhere. And that's when Scotty points out that they've got eight minutes until they'll be able to lift off. So Spock, I, I kind of like this. He gives them 10 minutes. I like that it's basically like they'll be ready in eight. 
So it's not you have eight. It's you'll have ten to bury him, and that he'll assist as well. I think this is where he he really starting to turn things around in terms of how yeah, exactly. he's managing things. I think he's starting to realize and click like this is how you lead. I'm going to have to make some compromises in my own thoughts and kind of get to the be on everyone else's yeah. level at certain points to get them to you know, trust me a bit more. If I'm just telling them to do stuff dispassionately, mm. they're just going to hate me. So I need to sort of, you know, kind of show that I'm willing to, to, to work and help even on things that aren't necessarily important for the survival of everybody, but just, you know, things that will make other people feel better, mm. basically. I'm willing to sort of help out with that, even if it's not for my benefit. Yeah, it shows that he's willing yeah. to do that. And it also brings across the interesting... A little bit of a trope in Star Trek, but the idea that you can adapt other gadgets to help to do other mm. stuff. Like they use the phasers, don't they, to um, to um, give them energy or power for, for yeah. the shuttle to take off. Um, and this is probably the first time we see that, but it becomes a bit tiresome later in Star Trek, where you know we need to get out of a prison or something. Oh, let's just adapt our communicator and just turn turn it around and do stuff on the back, and it turn it into a bomb. <laughs> Will turn it into a thing that will make people pass out, or it will turn it into a thing that can interface with the computer and unlock a door. Use overload power. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it, and then it establishes that you can use, you know, whatever Starfleet gadget you've got on you for something yeah. else. That build a gadget trope. Yeah, I mean, back in the eighties, you had MacGyver, and being able to MacGyver stuff was, you know, pretty impressive then. So I, it was forgivable for the time. Yes. You know. I mean, at this point, we had this is the first time, so it's not it's not no, tedious at, at this point. When we got to Voyager, it was like all the time. You know, that, that would be the thing that would solve yeah. the dilemma. The, the Columbus is then aboard, which is interesting because it was 23 minutes away. Then we cut to finding out that they've got 10 minutes. And then we're back on board the ship. So 23 minutes has obviously gone by at this point. So it's they're, they're cutting time a little bit. It's a, so I'm not entirely sure. They probably just skipped a bit before so that we're, we're catching the last 10 minutes of the those 23 uh, i think uh but kirk yes. again and this is one of those those terms that hasn't been established yet but he tells them to proceed at space normal speed yeah that was that was hilarious yeah which at first i was like is is that like warp one or something but later on he he mentions what one so space normal speed has to be impulse yeah, it's basically like probably full impulse, I, I would say. Um, I mean, I, initially I thought that maybe it was a code word he was using so the ambassador wouldn't suspect that he's trying to be slow on purpose to oh, buy possibly. more time. Yeah. But I think it was literally just the fact they hadn't... And that was how my head count that's, that's how we came up. That's how we wrecked on it. it but, yeah. <laughs> that's the record. Yeah, that's the show. But I think the real the truth is they hadn't... I don't think they'd even established the idea that there's a thing called... I mean, they knew that well, they wouldn't be going at warp all the time. There'd be something slower than that that would just be for interplanetary or, or in, in intersist space yeah. system travel. But I don't think they've established well, that. Even when they had established terms, like you said, there was no Bible at the time for, for that kind of stuff. So no. different writers would come up with their own terminology until things got a lot more cemented. But Spock gets attacked and he instructs the others to leave without him. Like this is one of the few times you see him genuinely panicked as well. You, you, you do see a little bit of his humanity yes. coming out there and he's, he's telling them to go. They ignore him, obviously, grab him, 
free him from this rock that's kind of fallen on him. Um, Which shows that they've kind of they've grown to like you know kind of I care about it, it might be dramatic, but it shows that they have compassion for him despite having you know issues oh, with yeah, his command yeah. style, perhaps. Which is a nice little moment. Yeah, moment, and then, and then we know. find out that something's holding them down. So that's obviously the the Torians latching onto the the hole. Um, so Spock takes over from Scotty and uh, proceeds to use the boosters, even though doing firing those so soon uh, will mean that they won't be able to maintain orbit long. And that, and then he gets really angry at the crew, uh, or as angry as Spock can get. Kind of pointing out that I think before then it was established as well that it, with the power they got from the phases, they might even be able to have a controlled landing should they need to do that again. Yeah. So I think this has thrown that out the water now. Yeah. And on top of that, because they've saved Spock, that reduces their chance of survival because he's now additional weight that prevents, like, from the extra energy that they've wasted now. Yeah. Um, so so yeah. it is a really precarious situation. The jeopardy's increased very quickly in a really good way, yeah. uh, actually. Not fairly easy to understand. It's not an, ab an abstract yeah. concept. Yeah, it just makes the tension even better. You don't know how they're going to get out of this. Yeah, and there's a fun back and forward between him and McCoy and mentioning, you know, surely there's another option. And Spock is saying something along the lines of that, that he's mistaken. And McCoy's glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah, um, Spock said there are always um, alternatives. Um, That's and it. Spock yeah. then says, "Well, the um, acknowledges that he may he, he he may have been mistaken on that, which shows that you know perhaps logic can may needs to bend a little bit sometimes mm. to be a bit more adaptive to the to the situation." Um, and it's a big moment for Spock to admit that you know he's not infallible. It's almost McCoy's way of complimenting him for that by just saying yeah. that he's glad to hear that he's admitting that he could make a mistake. And also the fact that he would do something quite drastic as fire the boosters and, you know, yeah. um, he's kind of, sh th th he's warming up to like the fact that he, he, it makes it clear that he can adapt to the situation in, in what, you know, in, in a dramatic way if, if needed. So again, yeah. it adds more layers onto Spock's character. You know, he's not yeah. completely cold and logical, you know, so yeah. And they're not expecting to survive because it's like, and so ends your first command. Like they, they, they're pretty confident that they're not really going to get out of this. They're yes. healing the Enterprise, getting nowhere with it. So Spock then, to, to everyone's surprise, ejects the fuel and then ignites it. Uh, everybody's baffled and just completely surround him trying to figure out what's going on. Scotty figures that they've now got six minutes until they, their orbit begins to decay and they start to burn up. Yeah. But because they've been going at space normal speed, Sulu sees the exhaust trail and Kirk then orders to reverse yes. course. And, and Scotty is genuinely impressed by this because he realizes that that is essentially a distress call like sending up a flare. It's a great moment, actually, but also it really is. very logical. It's actually a very logical thing to do because if they're going to decay and burn up anyway, what, what use is loads of fuel? Um, so... We might as well, it would increase our chances, you know, whatever percentage that could have been, by just, yeah. you know, basically making a giant flare. Yeah. So it was actually quite a logical decision. Yeah. That's it. And, uh, and McCoy is calling his actions very human, even though Spock's lamenting that it's all illogical. You know, the, the ship yeah. starts burning up. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was shown by like the, the systems like blowing up and the smoke entering yeah. the cabin. 
that stuff, yeah. Yeah, you don't yeah. get an exterior shot of it. So it looks like they're going to die, basically, but then all of a sudden they are trans- you see the transporter beams mm. go, go, you know, start to beam them away, So which is quite a triumphant little little moment, but done quite subtly as well. It's not like they don't get hailed and say, hey, we're here to rescue you. The Enterprise is back, and they're like, yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, just, you're just seeing them beam off. Yeah, and Kirk finds out that they've they've rescued five. So he knows that there's seven. He knows that two have been lost. But he you can tell that he's not asking like which ones got there. He's not like as Spock and McCoy and Scotty okay. He's just glad to have gotten as many as was obviously yeah. feasible. And I, I think he kn- yeah. knew that if there's only five there, well, they knew how dangerous the planet was from the Columbus being down there. So it's basically... Yeah. He's, he's relieved just to have what they have. And then they return. And this is when they go up at Warp Factor 1, before it just became Warp 1. Yeah, there was a lot of factors in Warps in those days. Yeah, And, and for, for an episode that doesn't have much Kirk in, which I, I think is, is at least nice to have a, this one with focusing on Spock, but I love Kirk laying into him at the very end talking about how what he did was an act of desperation and says that McCoy will back me up on this, that that, that desperation is a highly emotional state of mind. Basically trolling him. Yeah. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, Spock has a reason for an emotional outburst, but won't admit that for the first time he's committed a purely human emotional act. And Kirk just accuses him of being outright stubborn to which, Spock agrees. And yeah. And it's it's kind of that whole thing of the let's troll Spock at the end of the episode for a for a laugh. Yeah. Uh, which is very, you know what? You could say, like, well, it's kind of bullying him a bit, but if you really want to be like a bit more cynical or maybe maybe realistic about it, I don't really know. But it's quite charming and it I kind of it is. It's Kirk doing it because he's his best friend. And it's yeah. the way you teach your best friend. And so yeah, it's quite charming. It's it's a nice it's quite a heavy episode, you know, up, yeah. up, up, up until this point. So it's actually quite satisfying that they can all kind of just relax and have kind of a bit of a laugh just to just to help with the trauma, probably, of, of what of what has just happened. And um yeah, I think obviously coming from Kirk and, and McCoy, I think they're doing it because certainly in, 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 in Kirk's side of things, they kind of love him really. And yeah. Spock is a big reason why those five crew members are alive now because of the decisions yeah. that he made. And, um, well, ultimately he saved them really with his decision, decision at the end, which I think is actually quite a logical thing for him to do given, yeah. given the odds of everything. But, um, yeah, it's, it's actually a nice m- moment, um, at the end because it's a heavy episode. Yeah. It's not, uh, like no way is there any punishment there. It's all very, you know, very supportive. And if they had just filmed Kirk and Spock and that was it, then it might come across as a little bit negative. But yeah. you see the faces of McCoy and Uhura and Mears, you know, and they're all just, they're just kind of there with very wide eyes. You know, they're just all smiling. You can tell it's just that very friendly family roasting. Yeah, it felt like the family aspect is really is strong there. Um, yeah. And it's an, a lovely, warm way to end the episode, you know, and um, mm-hmm. it's a really good episode. Again, quite quite dark themes in some aspects of it, with like, you know, making decisions about crewmen being left behind, and we see actual actual crewmen dying, and really good use of um, not really showing the aliens to to really help with the with the tension and uh, the horror. Really great use, like 
bringing in brand new concepts concepts into Star Trek, like the shuttlecraft in in general being the big one, and a lot of character development for Spock as well. Huge amounts, yeah, and and McCoy uh, to some yeah. to some degree actually their their relationship uh, massively so mm. how important that that becomes, and just I think the only thing that gives the one bad thing about it is the whole s- situation with you know their. They're stopping delivering a vaccine so they can look at a quasar. I mean, they're all laughing at the end of the episode. Like 10 more people have probably died on, on, on that planet they're supposed to be going to because they've delayed it, you know. So, you know, if you really want to be nitpicky. But, um, yeah, a really good early episode of uh, the original series. And, like, the first episode generally is very strong, um, I think. Probably one of the stronger mm. first seasons um, of yeah. Star Trek, I think, generally. And it kind of got worse with each series of the budget. <laughs> And then the, the studios didn't, you know, wanted to cut the money and everything. But yeah, a really great episode. Again, doesn't get talked about enough, but super important in the history of Star Trek for the stuff that it establishes. If you can get around the idea that they should have just gone and given the vaccine out first. <laughs> <laughs> and then got back later. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that wraps up our fifth episode of Long Range Sensors. We've done five, which is incredible. I know. Flown through them. So if you have any questions for us on the show, or if you want to just let us know what it was like for you going to exhibits and exhibitions and, uh, and conventions and stuff, we'd love to hear all that kind of stuff. Uh, you can reach us via Twitter at Star Trek LOS, via our website at longrangesensors.com, or you can email us directly at longrangesensors at icloud.com. You can also discuss this episode with us over on our exclusive private Discord channel by joining the crew of the USS Atlantic at patreon.com slash longrangesensors. If you enjoy listening to the show, then please also consider telling a friend, sharing it on social media, or telling other passengers on your shuttlecraft commute in the morning. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to share our content and goes a long way to help our show reach even more people. My name is Alistair, and you can find everything I'm up to at alistairmcfly.com, and you can follow me at both at alistairmcfly and at imcfly on Twitter. If Twitch streams are your thing, you can also check out my channel over at twitch.tv slash alistairmcfly. Trev, where can people find you? You can follow me at Henry Jones Jr. on Twitter. Uh, you can also check out my other podcast, which is all about modern and retro gaming with my co-host Stu over at consoleshock.net. It's also on iTunes and Stitcher or Apple Podcasts and Stitcher these days. Um, Yeah, that's where I am. You've been listening to Long Range Sensors, where we always travel at space normal speed.